Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Ryan Sharp at Inso Winery in Portland. It's March 9th, 2023. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Heck yeah. Uh, first question, why wine? Well, because beer is super filling and spirits get me really drunk really fast. But you probably mean, why did I get into wine? Okay. Because <laughs> wine's pretty much all I drink anymore. Although when we started Enso, the reason, so we have like three taps, three beer taps here. And the whole reason that we had beer here when we started was because we would drink beer while we were making wine. That's like, a, I know it's like, how many gallons of beer does it take to make a, a bottle of wine? But like, we really did drink beer a lot. I just, I can't do beer anymore. Um, anyway, so getting into wine, um, so I had had a, a handful of other careers before winemaking and I guess my like zeal for wine started when I lived in San Francisco, um, which is probably like, oh, my oldest son's 16, so it was like 17, 18 years ago. Lived in San Francisco. Um, I, like many young Californians at the time, drank two buck chuck. Um, and I remember when we moved to San Francisco from Southern California, I, there was a guy who was kind of a mentor of mine for a couple of years. He would like uh, introduce me to not like fine wines, but like good wines, like like uh, like like real wines. And 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 so my, my my palate started to adjust. In fact, so much so that I, I distinctly remember the time when my my ex-wife and I. She was my wife then. Uh, when when we were invited to a dinner party and they were serving two buck chuck, and I remember thinking, "Fuck, I'm really a snob because I'm just I can't drink this." And it wasn't even like, "Oh, I'm not going to drink it." It's like, "No, no, now I know that like that's actually really bad." Um, anyway, okay, okay. So two buck chuck. My mentor in San Francisco, not wine mentor, more like spiritual mentor, introduced me to good wine start wine tasting, you know, of course, California is just you know, so full of wine tasting. And of course you start in Napa and Sonoma and maybe Mendocino. Um, but the, the, the place that I fell in love with was the Sierra foothills. So, uh, you know, like an hour east of Sacramento in old gold country, you have all these like little Wineries. I'm sure there's big ones, especially now out there, because it's it's such a great wine growing region. Probably my favorite favorite wine growing region in the state of California. But what was cool was that I would go out there with friends, and you might actually be talking with the winemaker at the winery. It wasn't like Napa. I mean, Na I mean Napa, you get that in a very few select number of places, but. But most of Napa, you know, they, they say it's like wine Disney world now. And, and it, it really does have that feel where like, yeah, you're pampered, but you're not like, you're, you're not seeing dirt underneath the fingernails in Napa Valley, right? It's like, it's, 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 it's not like that. But in, but in the Sierras, you do see that. And um, I had, I started to, um, 
have this dream of when I retire, you know, in my 60s or whatever, that I would buy a small plot of, um, of land in like Mariposa County, so like right up against Yosemite. And I'd plant like maybe three to five acres. And at that time, like all I could focus on was Zinfandel and Petite Syrah. And, and that that would be, you know, I'd tend to the vines, I'd make the wines, I wouldn't distribute, I'd just sell them out of my barn. And so that was like a, that was a dream of mine. Um, and so this is, again, this is like, you know, uh, 16, 17 years ago. And, and here's the thing about the Sierra Foothills and about it being these smaller wineries is a lot of the people that own these wineries, they're not like second, third generation winemaking families. They are, they were city commissioners or they were accountants or they were uh, musicians and now they're like, next phase of life, I wanna start a winery. And I thought that was so um, um, like normalizing. Like when you go to places like Napa and Sonoma, if you're a person who's like, oh, I'd love to, you know, maybe have my own wine brand, you go to Napa and Sonoma and you're like, there's no way in hell I could ever do this. It's like, it costs, you know, $10 million just to have an idea, much less to execute it. But you go out to, at least, you know, back in the day, you go out to the Sierra Foothills and you're like, oh, there's actually like possibility for normal people to, you know, manage a small plot of land um, with not like a crap ton of money and make good wines and then be around to talk about them. So. While I did not ever launch my project in California, um, as it would turn out, a couple years later I would move up to Oregon, I did basically make that happen in Portland. Like that's still the genesis of my wine dream. Um, so like, you know, there were, there were steps along the way, right? So, so I'm, I'm living in San Francisco. I was actually brewing beer at the time, which I really in, enjoyed that. And, you know, again, my mentor's getting me into, you know, nicer wines and I'm going and talking with these really interesting winemakers in gold country. And by the time I land in Portland, I'm like, I want to start working for a winery and I want to start getting education. So I went down to Chemeketa, which although it's a community college and I never got a degree from it because I already had my bachelor's, but uh, not in winemaking and something else, but Chemeketa was awesome. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's really inexpensive. Uh, they have great professors. Like everything about it was, was awesome. And so, so I went there, I started working for um, a small winery in uh, like kind of North Salem area. It's not there anymore, but it was called Arcane Cellars and the, the vineyard was called Wheatland Vineyard. Um, uh, father, son, team, and they sold a property I think like two or three years ago and they all moved to Portugal. Good on them, I mean, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's amazing. Turns out they have grapes there too in Portugal. Um, so I, you know, I, I I went to work for, uh, for this winery in North Salem. Um, uh, they had me do farmer's markets. They had me do in-store pourings. And then eventually I was allowed to do crush and harvest. And, um, and I realized quite quickly that I'm actually not a vineyard guy. Like I, I, I love the idea when I didn't know about the distinctions between growing grapes and making wine. I love the idea of tending to a vineyard um, but as it, as it turned out, I, I really was like, I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, but I'm, I'm great with like, you know, chemistry. Um, I'm great with like, you know, at home cooking, like this herb would go really great in here. So I have that sort of like, uh, 
sensual aesthetic or like I, I like you know using the lab of flavor and aroma. Um, I'm very comfortable in that. And also I, I love storytelling. So like marketing products has, has never been too much of a problem for me. Uh, so I realized I'm not a grape guy or I'm not a, I'm not a grape farmer, but I do like, um, I do like wine and being around the production process. And um, so once I realized that, that I love being in the winery, but not in the vineyard, I was like, well, I'm driving an hour, hour and a half every day, one, you know, in each direction down to Arcane. Like we could probably do something like that up here in Portland where everybody lives. Um, so, so I started Enso. Um, and my whole idea with Enso was just to create a neighborhood winery. It never was about being in multiple states. It was never about being on uh, restaurant wine lists. It was about creating a cozy environment where you wouldn't just come in and get to taste wine and ask questions, but also you might want to hang around for a bit. And you know, the funny thing is that like these days, I think most people probably just think we're a wine bar. Like they, you know, they see the barrels in the back, um, but they probably think it's just for decoration, which actually right now it is just for decoration. There is no wine in these barrels because they all went to tank at the beginning of this year. We blended and bottled them. So like right now they're, they're actually empty, but uh, they're not, they're not props. <laughs> they, they, they have been used. Um, but I'm just saying most people, you know, sort of interact with us as a, as a cozy wine bar. Um, here, here's one other thing I'll say about the whole like Napa, Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino distinction from gold country. I remember a handful of times in Napa where I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm smelling this like, uh, I don't know, it's like a, it's a gunpowder or something. And I, the person would deadpan behind the wine bar, be like, nope, that's not in there. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like I smelled it. Like I'm not saying that you have to say, yes, you are correct, there is gunpowder in your glass. But like, but everybody smells something and tastes something a little bit different. And when I was in gold country with these people who are genuinely, you know, like passionate, curious, again, this is new career for them, a lot of them anyway. They're like, oh, that's interesting. They're like, they're like, I don't think it's reduced. I don't think it's like a sulfur thing, but let me. They're like, I don't really get it. Like, could you describe it a little bit more? And I'm like, I'm like, well, maybe I, I mean more like peppery. And they're like, oh, we totally get peppery. And I was like, that's how I'm gonna run Enso. I'm gonna run Enso as a place where you can, you can make any comment about the wine or ask any question about the wine and you won't be shamed. Now, wine culture has casualized significantly in the last 20 years, like since my time in Napa. I don't know if it's casualized there, but it's, it's broadly wine has been casualized. So I like to think that while I, 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 I'm not suggesting that we were like this like huge contributing part of casualizing wine and making it less um, esoteric, but we certainly were a, um, you know, and so was formed in sort of opposition to the stuffiness of wine. Um, which is funny because the stuffy side of wine probably was in opposition to like 
the dumb jug wine movement. You know, it's like it's like everything is sort of like waxing and waning, ebbing and flowing. And so, like, no problem with the you know. And and uh, some people just like to go and drop a hundred bucks at a Napa winery and taste three wines that all taste the same. And you know, I mean, and no problem. But uh, that's not what you're going to get at Enso. <laughs> um, so that's why I got into wine, or how, or when, or something. <laughs> I'm gonna pick you back up there in a second, but I'm curious. Tell us a little bit about uh, life before wine and the, and the careers you you were in before coming here. Uh, okay. When I was a kid, I always dreamed of growing up and becoming a Christian musician. Um, I went to Christian college. I started a band there. Before I could even graduate. Christian college, my band was on the road. So for like 10 years of my life, I toured as the front man of this, we weren't that big, but we did play some big venues, Christian band. Um, now that's not, my, that's not my world anymore, but I do have like, it, it was an amazing time in my life. Like we were, you know, we were in different cities almost every day, like, you know, doing the autograph things. This is what's so funny. Girls would ask me to autograph their Bibles. <laughs> It's the most ridiculous thing in retrospect. I didn't write this. This, this is not my book. <laughs> I do remember one like youth pastor guy being like, does it ever, and you know, I was a young kid given way too much influence. I mean, I'm, I'm literally like in my young 20s and, and he's like, does it ever bother you like this idea of signing a Bible? And at the time I was like, no, no, why? <laughs> um, but in retrospect, it's kind of weird. Um, but uh, it's not my world anymore, but I, I, I now look back on that time, you know, 10 years of my life, maybe even more than that, of being, you know, a recording musician. Uh, I produced other bands. Uh, we toured. We had like a 30-foot RV with like a 20-foot trailer. I mean, we, it was the legit thing. We traveled to other countries and played music. and. Um, uh, and actually, when, when I started Enso, I was pretty much the only person who worked the bar, and um, and and people would would ask me like like oh like do you do you miss touring and playing music? And I was like I don't. Like I had a great time doing it, but like when the next season of life happened, um, I, it wasn't like a oh I wish I could go back and keep doing that. Like I had a good run, um, and then it was like you know time to time to switch things up. And so uh, after, after being a performing musician for a decade or more, uh, finished my college degree, uh, and my, my first wife and I um, started a graphic design studio. So she was mainly the talent, and I was mainly like the, um, the, the client liaison. Um, and so I was working behind a computer um, you know, interacting with, with both the client and our subcontractors. And we produced some really beautiful stuff. And, and by we, I mainly mean that she produced some really beautiful stuff. Like, you know, this was still in the age of print. So like book covers, book interiors, um, but then uh, some digital stuff as well. Um, but I, I got really bored of, um, of being behind a computer all the time. And so I started thinking like, oh, it'd be great to like, you know, get my hands dirty. And so I was like, oh, I like making beer, but I like drinking wine. Like, let's try making wine. And so it's it sort of like just, 
through a series of things, making some wine at home, eventually working for Arcane, John Groshaw, eventually like opening Enso. Oh, I forget. This is not a first date thing that I talk about, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, between being a Christian musician and being a graphic design partner, I was a pastor for a short period of time. Um, so this is like, this had to be late 20s, which again, just kind of blows my mind in retrospect. Like who would give a 28 year old spiritual authority? It's so funny, whatever, it doesn't matter. It, this was another great experience. All my experiences have had beautiful moments and treacherous moments and all that stuff. Um, but I, I actually was a pastor for a handful of years. Um, like I did music, I taught, um, and again, that's not, that's not my world anymore. Um, I still believe in a interconnectedness of things. I actually bring that into my winemaking in some ways uh, and definitely bring it into the culture of Enso that like, um, yeah, there are no strangers at Enso. Um, even if you're a tourist and this is the only time you'll ever set foot in here, you're, you're met like a friend. Um, and that is actually, um, it actually makes me emotional. That's funny. Um, like I got into Enso for the craft of winemaking, but what I love about Enso, and I just, I couldn't predict that this would be the case is the culture that Enso represents, that it inhabits, that perhaps it helped to form over the years, um, said a different way when I think about what I'm proudest about with creating Enso 12 years ago and the 12 years that have followed since its inception, I'm more proud of the culture than I am of the wine. Like the wine is in some ways secondary. You can have good wines in sterile environments or worse yet in stuffy or even hostile environments Fuck that, no way. Human to human first, product to product second, right? Or human to human first, experience to experience second, product to product last. Uh, and that is, that is built into the core of Enso and probably any other project I'll do with the remainder of my life. So with the experience you had when you started Enso, tell me about, outside of kind of an ethos of Enso that you had in mind, tell me about the, the product. Tell me about what kind of wines you wanted to make yeah. and how you learned to make them. Right, so like I said, when I had the, the, the dream of owning property in uh, Mariposa County, um, it was Zinfandel and Petit Syrah, right? And to me, there's like, those to me are the two most quintessential American grapes. Of course, they're not from here, but like, you know, when I think of like, what is like an American, you know, what, what represents America in grapes? It's like Zinfandel and Petit Syrah, like big and bold and kind of crass. And um, so I, I, I've worked with those grapes the, the entire time I've been here. But um, two, um, well, three other regions that, that, uh, that I really got enamored with. Just before opening Enso to the public, uh, me and a handful of friends took a trip um, stayed in, to France, stayed in Paris, uh, journeyed out to the Loire Valley. So I'm experiencing very rustic Cabernet Franc. Um, I loved it. So that's like, that's region one. 
Region two, um, Cote Rhone. And that's mainly because when I started Enso, I was a huge Randall Graham fan. So Bonnie Dune made like the craziest, but most of them were really delicious wines, red wines. Um, they had some other ones. They had some white wines and some sweet wines that weren't necessarily my thing. But 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 he did some cool stuff. He did this like um, there was this one wine that I just I kept buying by the case when I lived in San Francisco. It's called Heart of Darkness. I want to say it was like a French. Uh, how do you say the grape? Like Madarin, M-A-D-I-R-A-N. I mean, it was like black as night. It was the it was the densest color or saturation of any wine, and it was just like so perfect. I haven't had it in years, but so I was a big Randall Graham fan. So like, you can't reference Randall Graham without referencing like the whole like Roan Rangers, the whole Roan movements in California, Topless Creek, like so. So Loire Valley, uh, Cote de Rhone, and uh, and Bandol. So. Uh, the guy who would be my business partner for most of the length of Enso, um, before he became my business partner, he was just kind of like a, a business consultant slash friend for me. Um, lives in Chicago, and he's been in the, 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 the wine, beer, and spirits world for, for quite some time, longer than me. And when I told him I was starting Enso, he sent me this bottle um, as kind of like a congratulations. And it was a bottle of Domaine Tampier. I'd never heard of Domaine Tampier before. I'm not even sure that I really even knew what Morvedra as a grape was. But drinking that bottle, I was like, I want to make this wine. So in my winemaking at Enso, yes, yes, I still do cultivate the Zinfandel Petite Syrah. And right now we have actually like, we've got a Zinfandel, we've got a Primitivo. And we've got a Zinfandel Petit Syrah blend, and we've got a Petit Syrah Malbec blend. So they're still heavily a part of our portfolio. But um, and when we started, it was all it was almost all varietal wines. Um, but now most of what we make are blends. So I've got my Loire Valley blend, which is Cab Franc, Merlot, which in the Loire Valley would be called Co, and then Malbec, and that's not a Loire thing, but it rounded out the wine nicely. No, wait, yeah, Cabernet Franc, Malbec slash Co, and then Merlot, Merlot softened it, because the Cab Franc was a little bit edgy that year. So that wine is called uh, Le Fleuve, which means the river that flows to the sea. So the Loire River flows out to the Atlantic, our Willamette Columbia River flows out to the Pacific, so I thought that was, that was fitting. So that's Loire. Uh, Cote de Rhone, we make a wine that, I love the name of this wine, it's called uh, Chateauneuf de Stark. So it's our play on Chateauneuf de Pop. Now, in, in reality these days, our Chateauneuf de Stark is, it's, pretty, it's a pretty simple GSM, so it's Grenache, Syrah, Morvedra, and then Cunoise. And it's like equal parts, like 25, 25, 25, 25. But the whole idea of uh, Chateauneuf de Stark started in our very first year, we're making we're making uh, wine in uh, in my friend's very small garage. 
It's all TTB licensed and everything. OLCC, everything licensed, but it was like a, yeah, it was like a 600 square foot garage or maybe smaller than that. And so what we found is, is that like we kept having these like leavings after press cycles. So we'd press off the Cab Franc, we'd press off the Zinfandel, we'd press off the Petite Syrah, and we had like six gallons of this left and five gallons of this and 14 gallons of this. So what we did was we just made a big kitchen sink blend of like, it ended up being like seven or eight reds and then like a white. And I was like, who does this? Well, as it turns out, Chateauneuf de Pop does that. There's 16 grapes allowed into Chateauneuf de Pop. I think three of them are whites and the other 13 are reds. And you can't use any grapes other than that. But if you're within those 16 grapes, you can do whatever blend you want and call it Chateauneuf de Pop. So I was like, brilliant. It's our, you know, we were gonna call it something like a kitchen sink blend. And it actually turned out really well. Um, so kind of surprisingly, um, because we didn't, we weren't like, oh, it needs more of this. No, no, it was just like, we have this, so let's just like keep pumping it into the barrel or the tank and then we put it into barrel. Well, so I'm like, okay, so it's kind of a Chateauneuf de Pop style wine, not those grapes. And I was like, well, what does Chateauneuf de Pop mean? So I look it up and I'm familiarized with like, okay, there was this time in French history where they gave a big middle finger to the Vatican and they said, we want our own kind of Catholicism. And so, they got their own pope for a little bit. And so they built a house for him or, you know, a castle for him in what, Avignon or whatever, Avignon. And that's what it means. The, the new house of the pope, shuts enough to pop. And so I was like, oh, that's a cool story. And then of course, eventually the French would be like, okay, fuck it, we'll, we'll go back to the Vatican. I'm sure there was money exchanged. I'm sure there were non-disclosure agreements signed <laughs> back in the 18th or 17th century, whenever that happened, I don't even know, but, the point being is that I love the idea of Chateauneuf de Pop. And so I was like, we are the new house on Stark Street. Uh, no, it's not a Game of Thrones reference. Game of Thrones didn't exist back then. And people ask us that. They're like, does it have anything to do with Game of Thrones? Is this like a Game of Thrones themed wine? <laughs> it's got a castle on it. And, uh, and it's got the word Stark in it. Is this like Ned Stark's? I'm like, nope, the Stark Street existed. So we're the new house on Stark. So, okay, so we covered Le Fleuve, which is our Loire Valley blend, Chateauneuf de Stark, which is our like kind of Cote de Rhone-ish blend. Um, oh, Lamaricon is our Zinfandel Petit Syrah blend. I already, I already told you about that. And then Morvedra. So not as a blend, but as a varietal wine. Like it, it was my attempt at Bandol. And um, we haven't produced a Morved red in a, a few years just because the vineyard that we worked with um, had some pretty severe drought conditions and they sell us grapes, but they don't sell us grapes if there's no extra grapes to sell. Um, so that, that's kind of like the, you know, the grape choosing. Um, our white wines, so we always have a white and a rosé. Our rosés are almost always rosé of Morvedra or rosé of Grenache because I like those pale Prov Provencal style rosés. Um, usually our white wines, and they varied across the years, are, you know, it's going to be like Pinot Gris or Gewürztraminer, like a dry Gewürztraminer or a dry Riesling. We actually did a dry Mula Turgal one year. I just like bright, acidic white wines. Um, we're not as uh, married to the varietals of the, of the white wines as we are to the reds. I'm curious about learning, obviously those are some, that's not just a single varietal. I'm gonna see what, how it turns out in the end. You're, you're blending, you're being creative, you're thinking these kind of things through. 
I'm curious about the process of learning that for you. How did you go about learning winemaking and how did you, how did it turn out? Trial and error. It's worked out well and it's worked out really poorly. <laughs> I, I've dumped some barrels, that's for sure. I've actually got, uh, 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 I've got some brandy that was made from four barrels that just turned to shit. Okay, but here's, okay, so, so a success story and a failure story. So what you, which one do you want first? Okay. Failure first. Okay, failure first. Um, okay, so in the spirit of that first Chateauneuf de Stark that we made, I was like, I bought a, I bought a brand new barrel and I removed the head and what I had planned to do was, so, so to be clear with the original Chateauneuf de Stark that we did, it was blending pressed wine into a uh, into a tank with a floating lid and then barreling it once we got to 60 gallons, right? But I had this idea that I wanted to try where over the course of a harvest, we would scoop out a handful of grapes from each batch, white, red, as they came in, you know, we, 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 we crush the, the, the Malbec and we put it in the bin. We're gonna scoop out, you know, a five gallon bucket's worth, slosh it into this barrel. So by the time that harvest was finished, and this particular harvest, this is probably five years ago, five, six years ago. By the time this harvest was finished, we'd probably had like almost three full weeks elapse um, from, from, from the first grapes to the final gra grapes. Maybe it was like two and a half weeks, but so, but I had blended, you know, basically to co-ferment and continue like extending the fermentation cycle because every time I'm putting new stuff in, I'm basically extending the fermentation cycle a handful of days. Um, it, I had to dump it all. I had a name for it. What did I call that? I, I had a very special name for that wine. Um, and it was like, we were basically just, we were dumping it in. Yes, we were, you know, doing punch downs to the barrel, but it just got, it just, um, EA and VA just got out of control on it. Um, I mean, like I literally just had to dump it, like completely dump it. It was just one barrel, but it was such a disappointment because it was like, it could have been cool. Um, uh, I eventually would refer to it as the bastard. Maybe that's what I called it early on. I don't remember. Il Bastardo is what we called it. So it was like Italian for the bastard. I think it's Italian. Um, so that was a failure, right? Like I was like, let's just, let's just work with nature, man. Let's just, you know, th these guys want to become wine, man. So let's just, you know, let's roll with it. Um, it was, uh, so, so John Groshaw, who's one of my favorite winemakers in Oregon, um, and who certainly has been a mentor, and now more friend, like we see each other every once in a while, but early on, it's definitely a mentor, whether directly or even indirectly. Um, and I think you could say that John Groshaw was a big participant in the Oregon wine scene as it is now, certainly in the urban wine movement back in the day. Um, but you know, John had this great quip about his winemaking process, and he's like, don't fuck it up. Like, don't be over-involved, but don't, don't let it go to shit either, right? Like there's, there's like, there's like hands-off natural winemaking that can create some great wines, but some like 
shitty wines. Like, well, you probably actually should have added acid, or maybe you should have kept it in more of an oxygen-resistant environment. Like, I mean, no problem with the natural wine movement. And then there's the other side, which is like paint by numbers, or you know, winemaking by numbers, and and that's boring. Like, I, so you know, if those are like the outer edges, then like, find some way. Like, what do they call it? Like, um, husbandry. That that's what we call it with animals, right? Where it's like you're not like pulling the baby, you're not pulling the calf out of the cow, but you are there to assist should something go wrong. And it's like, that, that's a good winemaking approach. So like, probably with Il Bastardo, I was an absent father. <laughs> I'm like, this, this kid's gonna grow up on his own, he'll be fine. <laughs> he'll be eating solid foods at six months, foraging for mushrooms and tripping on, <laughs> tripping on them, meeting God. Um, Il Bastardo died a very premature death. Um, okay, so that's failure um, in experimentation. Success in experimentation, uh, this goes back to Randall Graham. So I, I got to meet with Randall once, and this is like in the first year of opening in. So, you know, I kind of, like I was a big fan of his, but I didn't feel like there was any way that I could talk with him. I mean, especially back in the day, he was, he was a rock star. Like it'd be like me calling Jim Carrey who's a big hero of mine, to, and be like, hey, Jim Carrey, we don't really, you know, like, I like spiritual stuff, you do too, I like humor, you do too, like, maybe we should get a drink. Like, they, like he'd be like, hey, thanks. I actually, I wrote a book a couple years ago, it was like a book of poetry, and I mailed Jim Carrey a copy. I know he's not gonna read it, although Jim Carrey, if you're, Jim Carrey, if you're listening to this, <laughs> please check your mail, because I wrote a book called Good Morning Sleepwalker, and I sent you a copy, and I autographed it. It's not a Bible. I don't autograph Bibles anymore. I only autograph my own books. So thank you, Jim Carrey. You're a inspiration to me. So Randall Graham was my Jim Carrey, you know, 15 years, you know, 15 years ago. So once Enzo was up and running, I felt like, oh, I could now sort of like reach out to him as a as a as a colleague, you know, and I could be like, hey, like I'd love to pick your brain about some stuff. And so he. He acquiesced, um, and I met him down in Santa, uh, Santa Cruz in his office, and, and we talked, and he, he goes, um, you know, he, he's, he's asking me, like, what grapes I'm working with and everything, and, and he goes, so no Pinot Noir, huh? I'm like, I mean, there's so much Pinot Noir in Oregon, like, why, and there's so much good Pinot Noir in Oregon, like, why compete? He goes, huh, yeah, I, I, I get that. He goes, but... There's this kind of Pinot Noir that's never been made in America. I'm like, okay, go on. He's like, well, apparently when the De Conti family purchased the Romani estate back in like the 1500s, they made their red burgundies with as much as 30, 40% white wine grapes. They just do a field blend of everything. And I was like, well, that's, that sounds like a weird rosé to me. He goes, no, no, it's, it's the whole co-fermentation, co-pigmentation thing. The poets in that era write about these early Romani Conti burgundies as being the most mysterious, darkest, red burgundies ever produced. And I'm like, I mean, okay, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, that sounds cool. Uh, so I, I sort of like filed it away. It wasn't like, a, oh, I'm gonna go do this. Um, well, 
I'm working the bar one night. This is probably nine years ago. I'm working the bar one night. This uh, this kind of middle-aged gentleman comes in. He's clean cut, and he's wearing like a like a members-only jacket. Um, really sweet disposition. He's like asking me some questions. Clearly, he's like at least kind of in the industry, or he knows some stuff. And he's like, he's like, so I noticed you don't have a Pinot Noir. I'm like, that's funny. Like, uh, yeah, we don't really do Pinot Noir here. He goes, well, why is that? I'm like, well, same thing I just told you. Like, there's just so much of it in Oregon. Why compete? He's like, but there's so much good. Like, this is Pinot Noir country. I'm like, I get it, I get it. But we always have my friend Vincent's Pinot Noir on our menu. You know, we have a handful of extra wines that we curate, and Vincent's has always been one of them. It's truly one of the one of my favorite Pinot Noirs uh, in the state of Oregon. Um, he goes, well, uh, what would what would cause you to make Pinot Noir? I'm like, well, I heard this kooky old story from this kooky old guy in Santa Cruz about as much as 40%, you know, let's say Chardonnay, and then the rest of it being Pinot Noir. He goes, huh. He goes, well, it's interesting. I own a vineyard on Lone Star Road in Oregon, and we just got our first crop last year. This year, you want a little uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay? I'm like, so now I'm like, is this guy, you know, I'm like, I don't want to put any money on the line. He's like, he's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, like, why don't we do like a ton? You can, you pick out the blend you want, which we ended up going with 75% Pinot Noir, 25% Chardonnay. He brought it here, he delivered it to me. He's like, he's like, tell you what, if the wine succeeds, pay me. If it doesn't, then it was just a fun experiment. He goes, I can't give you these prices forever. This is Lone Star Road. Like these are going to eventually be very expensive grapes, and they are, and good for him because they they were great, great grapes. So we did it. We co-fermented 75% Pinot Noir, 25% Chardonnay, and it made an exquisite, weird Pinot Noir kind of wine. And it was ridiculously dark or like hypersaturated. And now I understand that through the whole co-pigmentation, white wine grapes have the ability to suspend color and textural compounds on longer polymers than uh, polymers, polymers, polymers. <laughs> I think I was, I think I was mashing polymers up with telomeres. <laughs> okay, so polymers. There, right, you can you can get a longer chain polymer, which means that you can actually have a denser color wine. Um, so cool. So we, we and it worked out, and people love the wine. We called it the Prince. Um, a, a, an homage to the Prince de Conti, who didn't necessarily come up with this recipe, but I actually did find a book years later that documented the recipe of like four vintages of Romani Conti. And the highest vintage was 40% uh, Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, maybe Pinot Gris, I can't remember. Of course, these are all mutations of the same grape. What is it? Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay are all genetic mutations of the same grape, something like that. Um, it was cool, and we've produced it a handful of times since then. It's only ever been like when he's actually had the grapes for us. Um, so that was trying an experiment, and it's succeeding. So yes, on the one hand, you have Il Bastardo, me rest in peace. And then you have the Prince. So. I never wanted to like play it safe. Honestly, my winemaking these days is way more playing it safe. And I'm okay with it because part of it is like, oh, after workshopping our wines over the course of 12 years, 
I do tend to know more what people like. And do we still experiment? Yes, but like we don't experience nearly as much or experiment nearly as much as we did when we first started. And I'm okay with that. You know, it's like it's like I've found my genre or my genres, and that's what I like to produce in right now. And also if somebody came up to me with some opportunity to do an off the wall wine, of course I'd do it. Like I'm not dead. I just like and I'm not even on cruise control. I'm just You know, mature. Okay. <laughs> it's okay that Coldplay went from being kind of experimental, quasi Radiohead in their first album or two, and then eventually they're just cranking out fucking great bangers. Like, no problem. Like, maybe you're like, oh, I'm not into Coldplay anymore. That's no, no problem with that either. But like, you find your lane. And yeah, you could still weave, but like if you've got a lane that works for you, like Coldplay does great anthemic stadium music. Good for them for figuring that out. You listen to their first album, there is nothing anthemic about their first album. Like it's brooding and experimental. And so like whatever, it's all great. Like do th do weird shit, do normal shit, like just try to do it with some integrity and with some, you know, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so you sold out is what you're saying. I sold out. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. I swear that's what up. Oh, here, I'm going to grab my bottle. You don't have to cut this part out. It's the reverse pee break. <laughs> Instead of peeing, I'm pouring myself more rosé. I hope there's no time stamp on this video. I would prefer for people not to know oh, this what, is, what this time is, of day I'm drinking. This is totally after, yeah, totally after dark. This is totally the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, so once you're, back up just a little bit, once you're here and you get the idea to start Inso, and this mm -hmm. is the, tell me about the logistics of actually starting it, of finding a place and finding, figuring out what exactly you want it to look like and, and, and getting it open. Sure. So. I'll, I'll approach this two ways. I, first as suggestion, second as story. So suggestion to like, for example, aspiring urban, you know, garagists, like just pick something and start doing it. Like you will learn so much. And honestly, this is just good business advice and good life advice, which is just like, sure, sure, have a plan, but like just start because you'll meet people like, you'll get your questions answered along the way. Like life is about living, not conceptualizing living. So starting a business is about starting a business, not conceptualizing starting a business. And so, you know, it was, it was a high priority of mine in the year before opening to just meet with everybody I could in the industry and ask them questions. Oregon is a very, tends to be a very collegial culture as far as wine goes. Uh, there aren't like a ton of wine making or wine business secrets. People will share with you their stories. So ask the questions then. Because you know if they could help you figure some things out in advance, that's wonderful. Um, I knew I wanted to do it in Southeast Portland. Um, I happened to find this place because when my firstborn was very little, we'd push him in a stroller past this block to go to Meat Cheese Bread, which is the sandwich shop next door, and has the best breakfast burritos in, in Portland. And so I noticed this space. I, I couldn't see inside because at the time, 
that the previous tenant was here, it wasn't our big glass garage door, it was just like a steel garage door. But I had a sense that there was like some space in there. And um, when I saw a for lease sign go up, I immediately called the number. And again, it was like, we were walking to get breakfast burritos. I see the number, I call the number. I mean, maybe it's okay to say that the universe or God or fate or whatever just works this way. You see a phone number, you just call a phone number. Like there's nothing to lose in calling that phone number, right? Same thing with, 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 um, with him asking me about what I want some grapes. He had nothing to lose in asking me that. He was just like kind of interesting story, would you like? It's like, yes, and we and so we do things. And I find that like, is it, uh, is it Rumi that says that, no, it's, is it Einstein? <laughs> Somebody said, I think it's actually Einstein, which this is really spiritually sounding for Einstein, and I could be wrong, fact check me later. You don't need to edit this, but um, I think it was Einstein who actually said that when you make a decision, the universe conspires to like work with you on that decision. And uh, I don't know how religious or spiritual Einstein was, but I think there's something to that. Like you just, you just follow up on things. Like somebody calls you like, hey, I've got a question about why, you just, you call them back and like you might end up getting some information or helping another person with information. So I, anybody that I knew that I could talk to about wine, I just asked them questions. I see this phone number for a lease. I'm like, there's no harm. Like, let's just go look at it. We looked at it. I was like, holy shit, this is perfect. Now, when we started, we didn't have this rear cellar space here. It was just the front tasting lounge and then this barrel room that was our winemaking space. Like in the first year or two of being here, there was no space back here. Like it was, it was barrels on the wall. It was case goods. Um, it was an office. Um, once we started realizing that people love doing private events here, we basically took over that, you know, 2000 square foot cellar and put all of the, you know, kind of tactical gear back there. Um, so found this space, um, kind of roughed out what we do with it, what would be required in the, um, in, in the, in the, in the rehab of it. Uh, it, it wasn't terribly complicated. My, the guy that I started this business with, um, he and I built everything here, like, almost everything. There, there's a couple people who've helped us build some things since opening, but we just started. So we, as far as the, the, the broader story of Enso, which, you know, goes a year back before we opened the public, um, I was working with this guy at Arcane Cellars on the drives back and forth. We're like, this is a really long drive. We could be making one a lot closer to where we live. Um, so. We went through the entire process of getting his uh, his residential garage, TTB, OLCC, city, county permitted for making commercial wine. Um, and so that was nice because that was a very low, uh, low cost way to, you know, we weren't paying rent, we weren't paying. Um, and then once the wines were ready, that's when we moved into this space. Um, I'll say years one and two were like, you know, neither of us were getting paid. Um, and he, he left the business, you know, just before I think our second year, um, um, we weren't getting paid. This was a passion project of ours. The, the business was, you know, barely making rent some months. Um, but again, we were kind of early to the scene. We were not the first urban winery in Portland. Um, no way, but 
We were, as far as I know, we were the first urban winery to take a more like cafe metaphor. Like you're not, you know, uh, uh, the experience of a winery for me traditionally is you walk through the front door, you go up to the tasting bar, you taste there, you buy some bottles, you leave and you go home. Um, maybe there's an up, you know, maybe there's like a slight upgrade to that where like they've got a picnic area out here and you could do it, you know, they'll come through and forth. Our, our um, you know, like I said earlier in this, like it was really about creating a space that people would want to stay at. Um, now from a business perspective, it's brilliant because selling wine by the glass is so much better than selling wine by the bottle to go. I mean, like the margin is so much better. So from a business perspective, like that was wonderful. Um, but also again, from a cultural perspective, you're not just interacting with somebody at the bar. If you just want to be here and meet up with a friend and have no interactions with the bartender or the winemaker, no problem. Um, so, so much of it was having a plan, but then responding as things come up. Um, I had a business plan, I had a business model. Um, am I where the business model suggested I would be now? No. And I mean that in, I, I guess I only mean it in a good way. Um, like I can't think of a negative, but there were things that I couldn't, um, uh, that I couldn't uh, conceptualize when we started. For example, the whole event space thing. Last year we did two dozen weddings in this space. I never would have thought we were gonna do weddings here. Um, what a beautiful space to do weddings in, and it's in Southeast Portland, you know? For the right size of crew, this is a great space for a wedding, but I never would have known that because when I started this, it was about making wine. No problem, that's great too. But when you start having the people say, oh, it'd be so nice if you could clear some of those boxes out and, and we could, you know, do a dance party back there, like then we might get married here. It's like, oh, people would like that. That would be easy for me to give people. Like that seems within my interest. Um, so there are, there are sort of like ways along the way where we've, we've adjusted business model or adjusted, um, uh, adjusted the perceived trajectory. Um, and I'm, I'm happy about that. And also if we adjust it and it doesn't work, most often you can adjust it back. Life is so malleable. I don't know why, you know, there's so many people with good business ideas, and I don't just mean just in wine. There's so many people with great ideas, but I think that they stop themselves before they ever do it because you, fe you fear il bastardo. <laughs> but you have the opportunity for both il bastardo and the prince, and you're gonna get both. Like on some level, you're gonna get both in any, and that's not even just in business, that's just life. You just gotta be comfortable with like, with failing and succeeding. And some people are way more comfortable with one than the other. And it's weird that most people are, I think a lot of us are more comfortable with failing than succeeding. Like, like the fear of like what, I, and that's so weird to say, like, but I've had to check myself on that. Like, like now I'm thinking about like a second location in Portland, possibly a location in Bend. 
I mean, eventually, I'd love to open a wine bar in Mexico. Um, I'm going down there uh, uh, next month to actually check out this new wine region in Mexico that I'm like, this could be fun. Um, but there is, I think, a, a fear of success uh, or, I don't know. That, that's not part of this interview. Um, <laughs> you don't need to cut it, but we don't need to go any further down that road. We'll bring a couch next time and we'll have some more conversations that's right. about this, part two. That's right. Part two is the is the Freudian sex. The, 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 the bloodletting. The bloodletting. <laughs> okay. So once you're so once you're you're open and you're you're kind of you can say kind of experimenting, seeing how things work. Tell me about the bar aspect of it. Obviously, an urban winery that's a big part of it. Is you can have different hours, you have different clientele, you have different. So tell me about making your client base, finding your neighbors, finding your people. You know, it's funny. Uh, when we first opened, we actually did a direct mailing piece to everybody in the neighborhood, um, which that that's in line with it being a neighborhood bar. Um, it's just a funny thing to think of, like doing a direct mail piece um, these days. But it actually was really effective for just like letting the neighbors know, like, hey, you probably didn't know, but you have a wine bar in your neighborhood um, or a winery. We really would have identified more as a winery at that time, urban winery versus like. And I don't call us a wine bar. It's just that, again, that's how a lot of people think about us. So, you know, this is a little bit of like elbow grease and dumb luck. Um, the elbow grease is working here for two years, pounding the pavement, doing, you know, offsite tastings, any sort of media that we could get, um, not paying ourselves. Um, And then, you know, figuring out what works and trying to like build into that more. And then dumb luck. Like I didn't know that in year, I forget what it was, like year four, maybe it was year three, Willamette Week named us Bar of the Year. Um, that's dumb luck. Um, that's not something that I could, um, and like even recently we've gotten these like bumps where, uh, suddenly like we have a weekend where we're like shit we're like basically understaffed because and it's like well there was some meme that went viral it's like i don't have any control of this stuff it's just like you know people do it and the whole willamette week thing was really sweet and i won't talk too much about that but you know this guy from the willamette week emails me says hey just want to let you know like uh you're one of the finalists for bar of the year um I'm like, that's crazy because we're hardly even a bar. <laughs> um, uh, but he's like, you're one of the finalists. Can I talk with you on the phone for a little bit? So I, I end up chatting with him on the phone for like an hour. Great conversation, mostly around the culture of wine and how Enso has participated in, uh, like I said earlier, kind of the, the casualization, the, the demystifying aspects of wine and the wine culture. And he, he really seemed to get that. I, and I appreciated that because, you know, uh, talking wine culture is different than just talking wine um, or even just bar culture. Like wine culture is its own thing. And, and at, the end of the, at the end of the interview, he goes, well, just so you know, uh, you're the only one I'm interviewing. You guys actually won bar of the year, but I didn't want to tell you that at the beginning. And he's like, he's like I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't share this until an article comes out in two weeks. And I was like, fuck. And I read the article and they, he does say like, you know, Enso really helped pioneer this approach, this 
Okay, so there were like two options before I got into wine. There is there is either like the serious winemaker, um, which no problem, like might make good, might make great wines, might make good wines, might make shit wines, but the culture is serious. And then there was like the other side, which was kind of the silly wine brand. So I think of like, they're not called this anymore, but like Naked Winery out in Hood River, like, you know, it was like, Penetration red and like you know I don't it was it was silly and I was like I don't I like humor but like silly is like a little too silly for me <laughs> like show some fucking respect it is wine like this is like you know what the gods drank in ancient Greece right so like let's not uh let's not any let's not sully it too much so like I was like eh, what, how do you find a you know an in between or whatever um, so I appreciated that Willamette Week was sort of able to capture that. And so, not that we were unique, but that we were part of this third way in wine that was not stuffy, but it was not cheeky. It was like, I don't know, authentic? It was boutique without using that word. Because um, boutique sounds like it could edge in this direction of stuffy. Um, so, you know, like I said, the first two years, it was just me and my, and my original business partner, he worked the bar as well, although he hated it. <laughs> he was a great winemaker. He did not like people. <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> wonderful human being, but he was like, I don't do, I don't do the customer thing. Um, but I loved it. Um, so mainly I worked the bar the first couple of years. And then like as things got going, it was clear that we would actually have to add bar staff. Deeply uncomfortable for me. I was, I was the, the, the curator of the brand. Um, and I remember like this gal who was uh, kind of advising me on this. She's like, your employee, your employees are your most, are the most important part of your business. And I was like, I just don't know that I want employees. Like, but I had young children. Um, like I couldn't be here all the time. And so eventually I hired employees and the first couple of years was definitely a huge learning experience for me. Um, I made a lot of rookie mistakes. Um, I gave perhaps way too much autonomy or perhaps I clamped down way too much about certain things. Um, but I think that I, I can say that over the last, you know, let's say six, seven, eight years, I would say that the employee culture at Enso is again something that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, logistics are just logistics. Like, okay, you have to train this person to talk about this wine this way. Or, but I actually don't get into that too much. I will taste my employees on the wines and tell them my thoughts. I write all the tasting notes for the flights and stuff like that. So it's not as though I'm not here. It's just that after I've told my employees what I think about it, I let them talk about it the way they want to talk about it. Like, I'm honest with customers. Like, the, the, the Zinfandel Petit Syrah blend that we have right now, L'Americon, it's my least favorite wine on the list right now. There are people who love it, who go apeshit over it, and who will only buy that wine. But like, so if, if a bartender's like, I don't, I don't really care for that one, I'm not here to be like, well, you can't say that to the customer. <laughs> I mean, given, there's always a way to convert liabilities into assets, you know? Oh, it's just a very earthy wine. Oh, it's just so unique. 
<laughs> it's, it's just a little gunpowder. Just a little sulfur, just a little gunpowder. Oh my God. That person really did not like that comment. Um, so, I don't, I, you, some of this is like, um, tell me how to write with a pencil. You probably couldn't do it because it's just muscle memory now, right? Or you'd have to think really hard to, um, to describe how to write with a pencil from, from you know, ex needle, from nothing. Um, there's just so many things that have happened over the last 12 years that it's just, it's in my body now. Um, and I still make mistakes. I came in yesterday and the bartender had not locked the door the night before. The door was completely open or completely unlocked. Luckily the alarm system was on and I immediately just like go off on everyone. I'm like, like who did this? Like why? And like as it turned out, it wasn't even a person in a text thread. It was a person who subbed in for a bartender that night. So do I still make mistakes? Yes. I'm sure that I will still make a couple shitty wines before I'm done with this. I'm sure that I'll offend a handful of people, but mostly it's good vibes here and good wines. So when the progression of things, you're, you've talked about some of the milestones, obviously, making, getting to the point where, where you're getting some good publicity, getting, getting customer base, hiring employees. Tell me about 2020 and what that does to sort of the growth of your business and how you, how you responded to, to dealing with all the things that came in 2020. Like I said, I had had a handful of careers before winemaking. By 2019, I was fucking burnt out. No, probably like by 2017 I was burnt out. So at that point I've been doing this for seven years. So it definitely was like a seven year itch kind of thing. Um, I was on the road a lot in 2017 for this kind of second brand that we had created called Portland Sangria. It's like these canned sangrias and I was I was on the road in multiple states and all over Oregon and I loved it. I loved, oh, I had a Jeep Wrangler at that time. Like I was like, it was like summertime and I'm like driving to different cities with the top off and then I'm like, I'm the Portland Sangria guy popping open the cans and it was awesome. But um, Enso was hurting because I wasn't here, because I was really, um, and I, I couldn't, I can see it in retrospect, but I couldn't see it at the time. All I knew was that my output did not seem to be generating the kind of results. Sometimes it seemed like my output was going into the void. And so 2017, 2018, I just, I got, I just had really lost my passion. It had become a business and not a passion project anymore. No problem with that. Like, in fact, every entrepreneur should know this, that like at some point it's entirely possible that you will lose the passion of it. You know, it's, it's the same way in marriage. Like, you know, there's like the, the honeymoon phase of, of entrepreneurship is, is, is very similar. And, you know, then you're like, you're waking up in the morning next to your business and you're like, do I still love this business? Um, 
its breath stinks a little bit more than I noticed before. And so I definitely was experiencing burnout and so we decided that we were going to list Enso for sale. Um, not the building, I don't own the building, but the business. Because it is a great business and it has been a great business, you know. Um, and we found buyers. Um, and it, it took about six months to find good buyers and about six months to really like tighten in on like, you know, what the price was gonna be, what the, you know, arrangement was gonna be, all, all the details. Um, so found the buyers in 2019, early fall. In March of 2020, uh, we had basically like a closing date for the sale of the business. Um, just like you would have with like a closing date of a house. Um, everything was in legal. Like the, the lawyers were like, it, we weren't even having the conversation. I mean, we were having conversations with the buyers, but, uh, but all the details, all the like checking the boxes was happening in legal between our, our teams. And six days before the close date, Kate, da Kate Brown issued the stay at home order. Um, and so, poof, just gone. Um, truth be told, truth be told, I had very mixed emotions about selling the business. I just knew that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. Like there was, again, the amount of output required from me was just, it was, it was just taxing me. I, I couldn't keep doing it. And I didn't know how to, you know, whether well, it was set boundaries or I, I don't, I don't really know. I, I, I certainly didn't know then, except that something needed to change or I needed to have less responsibilities. And, um, so we listed the business, we found the buyers, um, and then six days before close, the whole economy got shut down. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I read all the headlines. It's so interesting, this makes me emotional because I'm so beyond this now, like I'm so, like it's, it's very strange. Um, like it's a thriving business again. Um, but uh, I had really mixed emotions in selling the business, but I also knew that these guys that we were selling it to would, I, I felt would be able to take it to the next level. And in fact, I had this, you know, like uh, fantasy or not fantasy, but like this vision of like, I'd walk into Enso after these guys had taken it over and they would have improved this or they would have improved that or they would have brought vision to this thing that I just didn't have the vision for or that I was bored with and didn't want to, um, deal with anymore and um, but when it happened I, I just I mean I was stunned I was in shock for months we, we were all in shock for months like all of us worldwide um, and you know we made our way through it, it there, there was this whole thing about how um, alcohol sales like went up so much during the pan during the lockdowns and 
that's fine and good, but that was happening at liquor stores and grocery stores, and and in maybe wineries that had like really, really well-oiled wine clubs. This, you know, we had a wine club that was very small. We, again, like I said earlier, we're mainly a place to gather to meet with your friends. Um, so it it did really hurt the business, and we we eked by. I mean, eked by. I will say this. So I, I, I laid everybody off except for me. I had this mobile bar that I rolled up to the front garage door and sold bottles to go for a few hours a day, five days a week. Maybe it was even seven days sometimes, I can't remember. I think in retrospect, the few people that I would talk to are what kept me sane during the lockdowns. Because at least I got to talk with real human beings face to face, um, you know, a couple times a day. And there were people who were literally in their fucking houses, maybe talking to people on Zoom, maybe not even that. So it's a weird gift that I got to be able to, um, to, to, to talk with people. Um, it's July 2020, or June, I can't remember. I'm on an excursion out in the desert in southeastern Oregon. Um, and I, I hear that Kate Brown has lifted the stay-at-home order. We can reopen. And so for the next seven or eight months before a new lockdown order is placed, um, I basically run the bar by myself. My wife helped with food kind of in the background, but like it was just me at the bar. So like, let me give like a, a, an overview of start to 2020. I start Enso in 2010, we open in 2011. I work the bar by myself for the first two years. Uh, the next few years, I'm in the mix of bartenders. And then, you know, 2017, 18, I'm never here. Everything's automated. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word where you have other people do things? Delegated. Delegated, thank you. It's delegated. I'm off in my Jeep Wrangler selling sangria, and then I'm ready to sell the business, and boom, I'm back at the bar. And it's just me. And uh, wow, what a way to be dropped back into yourself to be draw like like you know time machine type shit, um, and I rekindled my love for this place because people would come. You know, people weren't really sitting at the bar at that time. In fact, I don't think we were actually allowed to have people at the bar. But I'd still talk with people, and you know, they'd say things like, "This is one of my favorite places," or like, "You guys have the best bartenders," or. I love meeting friends here, or this is my go-to place for my first Tinder date. Um, and I'm like, oh, this place like means something to people. And not that I didn't know that, but, you know, when you create, whether it's art or business or children, you don't have full control of where it goes. 
You can be like, well, I did this for my child and this for my child, therefore their trajectory should be, fuck you. Like, good luck with that. <laughs> good luck with that. As a very rebellious person, good fucking luck with that. Life lives. It, it moves, there are emergent properties in all things. You can have the greatest, most waterproof, soundproof, <laughs> disaster-proof plan. Life will still life. It doesn't care about your plan. And so I get to be reminded of that in that in 2020 that, that I wasn't here for those two years before this, but everybody still loved this place. It wasn't me. Yes, I had something to do with creating it. There was some elbow grease, but there's a whole lot of dumb luck and other people. And, um, oh, well, Ryan, clearly you trained your people so well. No. <laughs> there are people, <laughs> there are people I had to fire along the way. No, it's just that there are emergent properties and, um, and people love Enso. And that second lockdown um, made me very angry. Um, made me very angry because, because us little guys were hurting that whole time. And sure, we pivoted however we could. We certainly did everything we could to pay rent. And there weren't, it wasn't every month that we could pay rent. I tell you what, early 2021, I think Kate Brown lifted the second order uh, Valentine's Day. And it's so funny because it's like, it's, it's this announcement made like a week in advance or whatever. It's like, well, why not just fucking drop it now? Like if you've made the decision to drop it, then just fucking drop it, whatever. I, maybe it wasn't Valentine's Day, I don't remember. And that's not even a political thing. Uh, we don't have to get into that. My politics have certainly broadened <laughs> during, because as a business owner, you are subject to things that, like, that you didn't think the government would have intervention over that has certainly changed some of my views around things. And I would imagine probably a lot of us have had that shift. It doesn't matter. What matters is that she lifts the order, Congress and the Senate, who'd been sitting on their fucking hands for a year trying to pass an act specifically targeted toward businesses like mine, finally passes it. So despair for December, January, February of 2020 to 2021. And then it's like, and then we start having events again. And then people are feeling good about being around other people again. And it feels safe to be out again. And not everybody, everybody had their own timeline to manage, their own uh, assessment of risk. Um, and no problem with that. Like, that's just life. Like, everybody does their own risk assessment of everything all the time. So, like, why get, I'm just saying, people started coming back out. We started having events. We had a, couple like micro weddings, like 12 people. We actually had a wedding here that they brought in a gigantic TV screen with a camera on it, like what you'd have in like a corporate office or something. And they were like zooming with 60 people. And then there's the 12 people that were here. We made it work. I will say 
that we have come out stronger, leaner, more targeted to what we sense our customers to love about this place, clearer in our mission about what we do, clearer on the way that we value human beings, regardless of political affiliation, risk, tolerance. Like, Enso is a place where you're okay. I mean, this, is, this sounds like cheers. <laughs> but it is a cheers of sorts. Um, no, I don't like that. Leave it in the video, though. <laughs> but there is, we have come out as a much more, our, our trajectory is perhaps clearer for the moment. And I am so grateful that I got to keep my business. Um, I'm so, you know, I was going through my own dark night of the soul with regards to all the ways in which I was required in my life. And all I could think to do was get rid of the business, pass it off to somebody else who could manage it. And I have no, like, I have no shame on that Ryan that felt that way. I was honestly doing the best I fucking could. It was like kind of a cry for help in some ways. But I'm glad that the forces around me basically said, we're gonna give you a break, but we're not gonna let you off that easy. Like, keep going, bud. And so now I have stamina for another handful of years, decade, couple decades, I don't know. I'm not making a, you know, a, a, a definite case around that, but I will say this. My 16-year-old son is now a W-2 employee here. His first job is working here. He's not a bartender or anything. He, he, he works for me in the back. But I'm like, what a gift. Like, that, like if you own your own business, like that's a cool gift to have. So I'm grateful that I was not let out of my contract with this place that I created. We've had a lot of answers to that question in these interviews. That might be the most interesting one we've ever had. So. Thank you for sharing the story with us. I appreciate that. For sure. Uh, on that note, then, um, on this kind of like re renaissance here, I guess, of Enso, what comes next? Are you are there things you're looking to do now? Are there things you're looking forward to, projects to undertake, new wines you want to try? Is there anything kind of on the horizon for you? Yeah, there are. Um, it, 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 you know, it remains to be seen which ones will actually uh, click, but like a few ideas. Um, First of all, Enso has always been an oral tradition. We have no like written staff manual. Um, so <laughs> one of the things for me this spring is to actually organize out a written tradition of our values, our processes, the responsibilities and who takes them. Um, we've always just had such a small team that it's never seemed required. But I think that at this point, if I want to scale the business into other locations, which, like I said earlier, I would love to open a second location, maybe Slab Town, I'm not really sure yet, but a, a second location in Portland sounds fun. Um, and then a location in Bend, because I love Bend, and I think Enso would do really well down there. Um, 
And then I don't know. I mean, I've got crazy ideas of like, well, if we can do it in multiple cities in Oregon, then maybe it could translate out into multiple cities in America. I'm not sure that I'm interested in that. Um, like I have to check myself on whether I really mean that. Um, but then there's a handful of other options that are interesting. So the zero proof thing is really big right now. And I'm not trying to throw shade, but I've not had a single zero proof or low proof wine that has been in any way drinkable. Um, so I'm curious about that. That seems like that could be a fun nut to crack. Like if you could actually, now here's the thing. Wine just might not be the beverage to do that. Um, wine is a highly aromatic product. Well, what pushes up the aromas in wine? Ethanol. You remove the ethanol from the wine, like it just might, it just might not be possible. Or, you know, you might have to introduce like the terpenes or some, something else to like elevate aroma. So like that, that, that's an interesting project. A, an interesting sub project of that would be like, well, Portland Sangria, my other brand, it's half proof, so it's it's six and a half percent, because um, it's, it's half rosé, half juice. So that could be an interesting product to try zero proof with. Um, so that's a possibility. I I think that probably that that probably like gives away whatever you know whatever ideas I have right now. Um, I do think that like what we've realized in the last probably four or five years is that Enso really is an event space. Like people love having their events here. So if I do open a second Enso in Portland or an Enso in Bend, that will definitely be a large part of it, whereas that was never part of the original business model. Um, but that's not really doing anything different than what we're doing right now. It's just, it's more like, okay, maybe we need to operate more like a venue because um, venues have certain things, like for example, a written tradition instead of an oral tradition. Um, and while people might love the idiosyncratic nature of like, oh, well, Ryan, he's kind of squirrely, but like the event was great. Like I, I probably need to like, you know, distill that down to like, um, oh my God, this was like five years ago, but we had there was an event scheduled back here in the barrel room and it like, it just was off my radar. I just completely forgot about it. And so I was like forklifting barrels around. There was like wine on the floor. My forklift was parked right here. And the client shows up, they're like, hey, we're here for the rehearsal dinner, birthday party. I don't remember what it was. And I'm like, ah. I'm like, no problem, just cleaning up right now. Drive the forklift back there, get the mop. And I was like, okay, that can never happen again. But that's just like, this is a multi-purpose room. We make stuff here, we host people here. Like, it's hard to do a lot of things in one space as a business. And <coughs> um, I think transitioning into like, we are an event space, means that like we have a way that we prioritize. Like for example, we have not made wine in this room for I think four harvests now. 
We do it in the back room now, which means that we have to do temp control back there. But that's because people love getting married and doing events in early fall. So we can't have grapes in here. So it's like, well, this was our winemaking room. Like we literally have a trench drain right there and no drain in the back. So, you know, there's just like things that we have to mess around with to make that work. So that's what I'd imagine to be. On the horizon for Ryan is travel in Mexico. Travel for fun. Travel for fun and for research. Like going down to Ensenada next month is for fun. I'm going to be there with three of my best friends. But also we're going to Valle de Guadalupe, which is the up and coming wine region in northern Baja, because I want to see what they're up to. Like there's still so much that one can learn um, about, about wine and about how people, you know, it's like I just love going and being like, oh, you do that. That's whether it's with winemaking or how they host people or how they do tastings. Like it's like, oh, what a cool idea. Like we should try something like that. Or maybe we don't. So tell me about uh, the Oregon wine industry, or, and especially the Portland wine industry, and how you've seen it change since you've been here. Um, what does the industry look like to you now in 2023? OK, so big disclaimer is that I'm the wrong person to ask about that. Um, I don't really participate in anything in the Oregon wine industry anymore. And that's not a, that's not like a, I don't need to, it's not that at all. It's, it's just like, that's just not my life. Um, when I started ENSO, I was heavily involved with starting uh, the Portland, the PDX Urban Wine Group um, with uh, Hip Chicks Do Wine and Groshaw Cellars. Um, I was a, a big proponent of that for the first several years. Uh, I think when my burnout started to occur, I did start like cutting off some things. Uh, not in mean ways, but just like, okay, I don't really need to be keep doing the PDX urban wineries thing. Like they're they're doing great. I don't need it. They don't need me. Um, I stopped going to any sort of like you know, wine festivals or wine uh, industry stuff. Like I just kind of pulled out of all of it. Um, there's a lot of things I enjoy that are not wine. Like I make music. I write poetry. Um, I go camping a lot, and. No problem with the wine industry. It's just I'm just not like a, it's not like a it's not a, a very big definer of me, um, and that's not to say that Enso is so remote in the or such an outlier in the wine industry. No, we're probably not. It's just that Ryan Sharp is an outlier in the wine industry in some ways. Um, uh, but. You know, what I said earlier, I, I, I still believe wholeheartedly is that, you know, predominantly Oregon and certainly Portland um, is very collegial. So there, there's a great book about Napa Valley wine culture, or the, rather the two cultures of uh, the Mondavi brothers. So the book's called House of Mondavi. And it, it talks about Robert Mondavi's approach to the Napa wine industry, and then what was his brother's name? David, Michael, Larry? <laughs> probably uh, wasn't Larry. So his yeah, Italian family, <laughs> probably not Larry. Hey, Larry! Um, so the, the, so Robert was definitely like the personality, you know, he was like, um, he was the face of the Mandavi winery. His brother, Peter, was his name, I believe, Peter Mandavi. Um, 
was the chemist. He was the he was the winemaker. Um, and there were apparently these two very different cultures in Napa in the, this probably would have been like, I'm guessing like late 60s, mid 70s maybe, or maybe even like mid to late 70s. And Robert was kind of like, a, there are no secrets in the wine industry. And Peter was like, we have trademarks, uh, you know, ways that we do these things. And maybe I'm getting them crossed, but I don't think I am. It's been a long time since I read the book, but Portland, Willamette Valley, Oregon, in my own experience, has been very collegial, very, shit, I need a pump. Can you, let me borrow yours? Yes. Um, fuck, my filter's jammed and I have no idea how to clean this out. I'll come over and help you. Like, this is not unusual. Um, and I love that. You know, I don't know what Sokol Blosser is like now. Um, like, that is, I haven't checked in on them um, in the last few years, but like, I read Susan's book when I first moved here 15 years ago. It was so refreshing. Um, and her two kids are awesome. Like, I love those guys. Um, Alex and Allison, is that right? Um, good people. You know, that's it. Like, like, I'm not saying that everybody in the wine industry is like good people. I'm sure there's some assholes out there because they're just, it's always gonna be assholes. I haven't met them. Like mostly the people in the Oregon wine industry, and I even mean beyond just wineries, like even like the wine distributors, like we're good people. Like it's generally like respect first, like make some jokes. <coughs> um, just be good people. Like I feel like that is part and parcel of Oregon wine culture. And this has been written about. I, I'm, I'm aware that this isn't just my conjecture about the Oregon wine industry. Like this is actually something that set the Oregon wine industry apart from where the California wine industry was, was headed or heading. Um, and w what really attracted me to starting my retirement dream in Oregon instead of waiting to get 65 and go back to California, um, I'd have no problem going down to Mariposa. That's such a beautiful country, but I don't know where it's going. I mean, I, I love the, you know, Oregon brand, uh, there are several Oregon brands that are, you know, they're very innovative. Um, we take the production of the product quite seriously, but our branding might be silly without being cheeky. Like I think Fossil and Fawn, like amazing branding. It's all like pun driven, but these are like solid rustic wines. Like, and, and I mean rustic in the best sense of things. Like, like dry farms, uh, uh, low intervention, just soulful wines. Um, and I'm not sure. Yeah, soulful is great. Soulful, actually, I kind of feel like the Oregon wine industry is kind of soulful. I like that. I don't know where it's going. Um, I'm, I'm kind of out of touch with it. Uh, I'm happy when I do get back in touch with those people. Um, but again, I just, I have a lot of interest beyond just making wine. Um, my last question kind of um, comes off of what you were just talking about. Um, other passions, you mentioned your book of poetry. Uh, tell us what else you're, you're, you're doing um, and hoping, maybe hoping to do with, with your life uh, the next couple of years. Woof. Um, okay, so 
uh, yes to the book of poetry. In fact, I'm I'm about to publish my second book of poetry. My first book. What's that? Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 cool. Um, the first book of poetry was definitely a pandemic passion project. It was like I had time to be with my thoughts, as we all did, and so I chose to write them, write them down, put them into poetry. Um, so writing has been a big deal for me. Um, uh, I've uh, I've been making music quite a bit in 2023, which is the first time in a very long time making music. Um, I realized a couple mornings ago, like I'm at my computer, I'm like putting this song together or I'm, I'm like making the mixing edits on it and I'm like, oh, I was just born to create. Like that's like, it's like, Ryan, what do you do? I make shit. Like, you know, I build shit. I, you know, uh, like I've got three paintings happening at my house, right? Or my apartment right now, like three different paintings where I'm like, they're not done yet. Like, and they're not for anybody else. They're just for me, right? Um, I make wine for people, you know, like I like to make stuff. Um, that's who I am. Um, I will say this, this is not about making things. I'm thinking about going full-time camper van later this year. Nomadland? Well, Nomadland. Now I realize the distinction between being homeless <laughs> and like, you know, at the edge of, you know, poverty or whatever and owning a camper van and doing this thing. It's, it's, it's kind of this weird, do you know that in Spanish there's no word for camping? It's Osser camping. Because the idea of camping, it is, it's, it's not like it's so American. I mean, it's, it's very European too, but the idea of like feigning homelessness for a few nights. Now, I think we, we can go back a lot further than that and say, well, it's actually feigning early tribe life. I think that's what, like when I go out with my best friends and we do a, a camping trip, that's what we're doing. We're feigning early tribe life. And, awesome, remarkable even. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if I'm gonna do the van life thing, but I'm curious about it. And I've been like, well, if I do do this second location in Bend, then that would keep me from having to like have a second apartment in Bend. Like I could just like drive my home with me. My dog would come with me. Uh, that has nothing to do with wine, music, or poetry, but it might be the venue, it might be the, the space in which I create my next idea. I do like changing things up in some ways to provoke, it's like, you, life stirs the pot enough, but every once in a while you choose to stir the pot yourself. And so I do think that if I got a camper van, that would be a big stirring the pot for me. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. That is amazing. And a perfect way to end this. Uh, all the questions that I have for you, anything that I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover today? Oh, no. Oh, no. We covered a lot today. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your I'd time. like to apologize to our viewers for... <laughs> I was just going to say, thank you so much for joining us for the first of our eight-part series. I know. Ryan with Ryan. <laughs> we'll be back for Netflix more. Netflix is already picking this up. <laughs>
<laughs> we'll be back for more. You know, thank you so much. Really do appreciate of it. Course. taking the time, so telling the stories. Thanks for the hospitality. Thanks for the canine uh, company here as well. We'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.